Hello and welcome to Film Disruptors, Season 1, Episode 9. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the show which brings you the game changers in film, whether that's in storytelling, finance, distribution, or in this case, the art of production design and world building, because I'm delighted to welcome Alex McDowell to the show. I would describe Alex as a visionary, as a designer, his credits include the formative and unforgettable design on Minority Report, and a number of other massive Hollywood movies, including Fight Club, Man of Steel. More recently, he has been developing this art and science and philosophy of world building in film as well as beyond in gaming with corporations and he teaches all of this at USC and today we get really kind of get a masterclass uh, a private masterclass from one of the leaders in the in in the world in this space I talked to Alex recently at Pinewood when he took some time out from his work on the design for Star Wars Episode 9 which I tried not to get too excited about and probably failed and we really dug into the art and practice of world building how it can transform storytelling and drive efficiencies across the whole production process and you are particularly lucky because you're listening to the special edition of this conversation which includes so much more material than we were able to include in the original commuter-friendly film disruptors package and in this version we go into a lot more detail about world building about alex's work with corporations with non-profits and gaming we discuss vr and it really does include a lot a lot more information and i really wanted to put this out here for those of you who are interested to explore this area in more depth if you are enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly, subscribe on iTunes. This will mean you get the latest episode as soon as they drop. Just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe. Secondly, if you go to the home of Film Disruptors, that's www.alexstoltz.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter. And this is where you can also find out more about our guests, access the Film Disruptors back catalogue and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you and I really appreciate everyone who has already reached out. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and now I'm going to hand you over to Alex McDowell. And I started the show by asking Alex what it was like designing the world for Star Wars Episode 9. The hugely different set of conditions around Star Wars is that you are stepping inside a, a mythology that's incredibly deep-rooted, that has a massive fan base, that has many films um, under its belt. And, and I'm, it, I think it's a fascinating area to negotiate between respect for tradition and, and, and genres. You know, it's absolutely not science fiction. It's, it's really history you know in mm. in in the terms of the way that the stories are told and and at the same time one wants to to um you know the we're pushing forward and we're we're in a new um era and uh, and so it's it's fascinating but also i think important to i something i didn't understand is that you have access to a incredible knowledge base and skill base of artists and designers who really work exclusively inside this franchise. And so there are artists I'm working with, certainly some of the best artists I've ever worked with in my career, who are really inaccessible unless you're working inside um, this universe. It's a, it's, a, it's wow. a fascinating process. Wow. And is there a sort of Bible which you can consult in terms of that, that history or, or is it just knowing the films? Because I think at one point or or prior to episode seven, they declared that all of the other literature around Star Wars post Return of a Jedi was was no longer canon. Well, it's quite an interesting interesting thing to do, I suppose. And I guess you just it's a case of keeping control of that 
that uh, that universe. But yeah, is is that a particular thing that you have to do to to consult and find out whether something is true within within the Star Wars world? You know, and I think yes, yes. Certainly, and there are amazing resources for that. There, there are guardians of canon within the uh, within uh. the franchise, um, but but I I see it very much the same as one would have to approach, let's say, the Greek myths or a pre-existing body of work that you're responding to. In many ways, what we had to do with for Superman with Man of Steel is that that you have to respect the the uh, narrative context and and that's fundamental to world building is that you you start with the conditions of the world and then you build out from that and so um, it's always been really interesting me to me to pay a lot of attention to reality even if that reality is entirely embedded within fiction it's you know it's pre-existence denotes it's sort of it's um, it's somewhat intractable and those are constraints which i find fascinating as a designer so i I don't see anything but but an advantage and it's fantastic to be able to reach out to pablo hidalgo in in san francisco uh, or at skywalker and say you know if we're in this era what would have happened what what battles uh, would we have encountered as a stormtrooper or you know whatever it whatever it might be fascinating and as a Star Wars fanboy, I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm trying, trying to keep a lid on my excitement about it all and, and, and retain retain some sort of degree of seriousness uh, to the conversation. Um, so, you know, I really want to sort of taking it, taking it back to the well, this this concept of world building, and mm-hmm. this is something which you you are pioneering, and you've set out a lot of different philosophies and concepts and practices around around this process i mean the first question i'd like to to ask really on that is just just to you know walk walk us through what world building is so there's a, there's a number of strands to the to the sort of idea or the concept of world building i think first of all it's a term that is um well known inside the game industry um that the notion that one develops a world from which ideas spring and stories develop is is not a new idea. I think what we've tried very hard to do, um, and I can wind back and sort of explain how this how this started, but I think what we're trying to do now is really develop a rigorous process around that idea that all stories spring from a holistic world space. And in order for stories, for narratives to be really rich, really robust, have legs, be capable of spreading across uh, media, for example, to really be looking at the kind of transmedia conditions that we find ourselves in, really radically different media forms that require new stories and new ways of telling them, that world building is this amazing base of knowledge. So I think I would say I, I would sort of get a couple of preconceptions out of the way that I think people equate world building or, or make a direct correlation between, the, say, the world building of, of J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, uh, on one hand. Um, and I think that that is not what we're doing. Uh, and I'll explain why it's very specifically not what we're doing. The other is... Um, the sort of idea of futurist, which is also something that world building is used for a lot, which is how do you start creating narratives that look into the future and become um, capable of changing the future, which is a part of what we're doing in the real world um, with world building. But we are not futurists and we're not trying to be predictive in a way. We're trying to really follow story and just understand and acknowledge that fiction is an incredibly powerful um, component of the way in which you think about the world around you, that everything that exists from this moment forward is fiction. Um, and that's a fantastic opportunity and that we need to learn how to, how to use that. But so world building in, in the terms that I understand it is, is a bed, um, that is around 
a design set of design principles primarily for my for me because that's my background but it it involves um gathering really expertise gathering expertise around the notion of a world the world that you want to explore and inhabit and then going through this rigorous process of research and inquiry this sort of framework of what if why not challenging all the conditions of the world taking on board the large scale framework sort of what when are we where are we what's the climatic conditions what are the economic conditions is there gravity you know um are we human the the, the any number of things that that absolutely frame the rules of a world but then to kind of dive into that at multiple scales and say what if we were developing a city for this world what would the uh the, what would the politics the infrastructure the culture and the energy let's say of that city tell us about the world and then continuing to scale on down through neighborhood and community through family or or the small group into the individual and then when you reach the scale of the individual you start you launch them into that world essentially and each individual who needs to negotiate and travel through the world that you've created is by default creating a story and the story that they create tests the world so we start almost from the beginning in a design project say with a film thinking about narrative thinking about how a character would have to negotiate the world that we're creating but they're negotiating it through all of the conditions that you would find in the real world and you ask the basic questions you know how do i where do i wake up what did i have for breakfast how do i get to work those kind of fundamental day in the life kind of questions tell you an enormous amount about how the how the world functions and the more stories that you push through the world the more clear the world becomes and so as a designer what i'm really doing is building intimate knowledge about all of the aspects that are going to feed the design of the environment um and most importantly the design of the environment with respect to the characters who populate it um or populate the multiple environments that we're building and the other aspect there's this sort of essential triangle that I think all storytellers engage in which is the relationship between environment and character um the influence they have on one another and then the viewpoint that one chooses to view the relationship through the kind of lens that you're looking through to understand that relationship so world building is sort of taking that triangle and laying it down over the multiple conditions or rules of the world at multiple scales and once you've started that process your knowledge of the world just gets richer and richer and the stories get richer and richer in turn You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Alex Bugdow. If you're enjoying Film Disruptors, may I suggest subscribing on iTunes? Just search Film Disruptors on iTunes and click subscribe. And in this section, Alex talks about his formative work on Minority Report. There were a few reasons that made it um, a unique test, and it was the launch of. the notion of world building for me or just having to understand that we had to start with a world because the first rule of that game was that there was no script when we started Scott Frank and myself started on the same day so when the writer and the designer start in lockstep there's inevitably going to be a period where it's very loose and we didn't really know how long that was going to be um although probably the majority of films that i start don't really have a script that's intact they mostly have something for you to read and they and so traditionally as a production designer in film you sort of are trained to say okay let's break down the script and see what sets we have to build you know in some very pragmatic way mm-hmm. um when you don't have a script you start thinking much more deeply about what are the what's the story that i'm telling and what is the 
context and the framework for that story. And you don't get, I would say, bogged down in the notion of like, what set do I have to build? You're really thinking at a much higher level about the why of the narrative. And so in the case of Minority Report, we really, we couldn't look to the Philip K. Dick Dick book because it was set in the 1950s in a military state in New York. And we knew from Steven Spielberg that it was 2050, um, some point in our future, that it was going to be set in Washington, D.C., uh, that it was around a police de- department, not a not a police state per se, and that it was centered. That the one common factor from the Philip K. Dick book and and the film is that you have these precognitive beings, the precogs at the center. So they're the disruptor. And then Stephen just set a, a basic set of rules in place, which were that uh, it is Washington D.C. It is 2050. He wanted it to be a realistic future. So we defined the idea of future reality rather than science fiction very early on. And then he wanted it to be a benign environment so that apparently, at least to begin with, the audience would feel there was nothing wrong with a murder-free society and that the this was a society that seemed to function well, that was um, not using fossil fuels, full of green space, technology that worked, seemed to be socially intact, you know, sort of politically stable, So those conditions we knew we had to work with. And then we started extrapolating. Um, We said, well, what if the the precogs had a limited range? Then there would be a massive influx of population scrambling to kind of get underneath this umbrella of a murder-free, crime-free society. And given that and given the conditions of Washington, D.C., which is you can't build higher than the Capitol building, where would this population go? So we imagined a new city that would spring up on the other side of the Potomac very rapidly, very vertically, um, because it was clustering to stay within the what we defined as the kind of radius of influence of the precogs. And that created a vertical kind of hierarchy. And so we started breaking down this world build in terms of things like urban planning. You know, how does a how does the infrastructure of a city work if you were bringing it from the ground up? What does transportation look like? What does fashion look like? What does architecture look like? Um, what is the politic, political and economic influences on the world? And then the future reality piece sort of triggered the other really powerful aspect that, that we discovered to be world building, which was that we had to, um, we could no longer rely on the closed doors of a film environment of a of, you know of hollywood to just make up our story we had to go out into the world and really deeply investigate what the future might bring um, and because we had steven spielberg's name at our back it unlocked doors to all sorts of places you know into giant corporations into darpa which is the the military research um organization um part of you know part of the government that we we had access to um it gave us access to research laboratories at places like apple or um amazon and uh, into architects office like frank geary into mit media lab which was very significant we we were talking to bill mitchell who was the head of architecture there to neil gershenfeld who runs who's a quantum physicist and runs the center for bits and atoms and who told us that he had never been asked to solve precognition, but he thought he could probably do it. Um, so we had these kind of amazing encounters with with brilliant minds, you know, far more brilliant than ours, who were enormously qualified specialists in their own field. And, and one crucial part of world building is that it's that gathering of knowledge um, in a collaborative sense that you, you actually put a lot of very disparate, skills around the table when you're doing an effective world build and each of them asserts an influence and the quantum physicist may be putting his theory forward about using quantum physics for precognition and the urban planner may be putting his theory forward about vertical infrastructure versus horizontal infrastructure suburbia versus you know city center etc etc um um and each of those um intellects around the table 
um, starts through the kind of tension uh, that they bring to their own particular um, area of specialty, specialization, having to coexist with other people who are highly specialized, who may not have actually had to confront each other's um, particular needs in terms of thinking about the future, you get these fantastic tensions and they have to resolve themselves. You know, it's impossible for somebody to come forward in a Hollywood way and say, well, what if there was no gravity? Because it undermines so many of the other sort of um, areas of knowledge on the table that you, you'd have to resolve that with everything else. So you you get to some kind of fundamental rules quite quickly. And then you, when you've, you've used the word fun, and I, and I think it, it's, it's fantastic fun for anybody who whose life is driven by curiosity as can, as I think mine is you are just constantly being surprised by by something that's an asserting an influence on the narrative space and on the way the world develops and I would say I've done I mean I've done hundreds of world builds now in the last 15 17 years and you never can predict where they're going to go you you are always going to find that there are left field ideas that turn everybody, you know, sort of turn everybody's um, inclinations in different directions and challenges basic notions and worlds. So with Minority Report, it got, first of all, it got very interesting in terms of the, um, the sort of things we were hearing. And now I think, you know, Minority Report has a reputation for being one of those films that accurately predicts the future or has predicted the future over the last decade or so. And it, it was not that we were being so clever, it's that we were just listening well, that lots of people were working inside labs with a 10 to 15 year arc of research, and they were already working on things that were going to be outcome by now. Um, so when we were looking at driverless cars or flexible media uh, outputs or tracking audience or um, Internet of Things or biomimicry and robotics and drones and all of those kind of things that had a place in, in, in the film. These were all real-world research projects that were in full swing when we were sort of setting foot inside these laboratories, but they were the tiny sort of first seeds of some of these ideas. And because we had fiction to play with, we were able to say, okay, if that's what you, you know, that's what you're working on, why could we not do this with it? So we could take the idea of driverless cars and say, well, what if they went vertically? How does Tom Cruise get to work in the morning if he lives at the top of a very tall skyscraper and goes to work in old DC? What if his driverless car was essentially a taxi cab meets an elevator? Um, so we were combining the notions of driverless Uber, you know, um, flexible elevator systems um, and indeed, you know, mobility as furniture, because we've seen examples in the last year of people using cars parked inside living rooms as pieces of furniture. Those were all ideas that we had just been playing with just by asking the question of how he gets to work in the morning. But we don't get to those outcomes without a lot of people gathered around that. You know, that, that, that impacts uh, car design, of course, and and a bunch of social impacts, research, and um, economic conditions, and maglev, anti-gravity, you know, so that you, you're kind of playing with a lot of different pieces mm. just to get Tom Cruise to work. Mm. That really, I think, brings to light just why that film is is so rich in the in in the many details it brings to screen and um, that's that's wonderful to hear how that how that process came about i, I guess you know so so many questions but uh, i mean one one is you had incredible access on that project to these top minds uh, what do you suggest to maybe an independent uh, storyteller or, or or creator who wants to build their world but maybe isn't able to have those same people around the table are there ways that they can they they can go about this but in a in a leaner way yeah it's a, i think it's a great question and, and and it comes up a lot you know we we do a world building 
three-day workshop at the Berlin Film Festival with the Berlinale Talents every year. And these are young filmmakers from all over the world, some of whom have to wait, you know, a month or two to be able to afford the digital, you know, the the, the cards to put in their cameras, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it, it's, it's, it's important, but I'd say it's fundamentally a scalable practice. Um, and it, it's highly scalable. We've tried it at, you know, I've been teaching for the last five years. And so for student projects, it's a constant question. Um, the, the, there's a couple of things to know, I think. One is that those experts that we had access to come to the table ultimately because they're just as curious as we are. And they're fascinated by the opportunity across the board. I don't think I've ever met a a domain expert who was prepared to talk at all, um, who wasn't fundamentally interested in applying um, narrative and fiction to their own um, sets of questions. And one one of the things that happened, which is worth knowing it's widely available is a, a uh, there's a group called the science and entertainment exchange neil gershenfeld joined forces with people like myself right after the minority report because scientists bemoan the lack of intelligence in much of um cinema where where it comes to science with respect to science that um that people make it up, right? They don't pay attention. They don't do good research, and and they're prepared to make ludicrous um, scientific claims to support their stories. And we've always found that real science is far more interesting than than crazy fiction. Um, so the Science and Entertainment Exchange was formed at the Royal Academy for Sciences in Washington, and it's a resource for filmmakers at all scales. You can call up and say, I have this problem, um, certainly in the U.S., but I don't, I can't imagine it's not actually a worldwide thing. It's, a, it's a, essentially a network of scientists, and they will um, put out a search inside their network, and those scientists will come to you and uh, provide their expertise for free. So you kind of do have access to the same people as, as Minority Board and films like that. Um, and the other thing we found just at the other complete other end of the scale is that I teach at University of Southern California, which is um, a collection of multiple schools. So the School of Cinema is one of, I think, 14 different schools that include medical and economics and music and theater and um, uh, law and very, you know, so um, there's an infrastructure there. And my class, my world building class tends to attract people from across disciplines. And so we almost, we've been very lucky in that we've tended to find that amongst the students that gather around their interest in world building, there is an economist and an urban planner and a choreographer and a um, uh, animator and, you know, sort of a really broad range of of, um, people working in in biology and, um, and, there is an interesting opportunity just to sort of reach out to that group directly around you and say, what is your area of specialty? And just be paying attention. And rather than um, the reason I said earlier that that I think we're specifically not doing J.R. Tolkien world building is that I think it's all about finding an alternative to the single author that that what we have found is that collaboratively joining forces with a group of people who are interested in the outcome of, of a world in general develops these incredibly interesting narratives, as I say, that you can't really predict, but they, they are highly democratic in their inception and they are paying a lot of attention to whatever level of expertise there is available. And you end up with a kind of group voice, a collective voice, that is much closer to kind of one, what could say to tribal storytelling, to the idea that um, storytelling is the way we make sense of the world around us and that the great myths were passed down from generation to generation, having been touched by often thousands of storytellers. And each one of them's voice added more and more richness and complexity to the narrative. So we're doing this kind of microcosms in a way of tribal storytelling where um, 
the notion of a single author kind of gets buried inside the world build. And that doesn't by any means negate the script because we, we, we still need there to be something that comes out of this, you know, this world space that we build that is instructive, that gives people a really clearly defined set of instructions to how do, do they move through this world space? How do you follow or d- define the singular um, linear narrative? in one aspect. So a script's very useful for that. And the writer is paying, is being given a resource in a way that's just richer than they might usually be used to. Instead of having to look around their own specific world space as a single author, they're tapping into a massive uh, resource. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I think it's, it's highly, um, uh, what's that word? Um, it's, high, it's highly complementary um, to the notion of, of writing, but it precedes it often. And what we found with Minority Report is it really did kind of flip the model, that the world came first by default because the writing wasn't there, it took longer. And then we discovered that there were a number of narratives within the script uh, beyond the architectural, contextual, environmental world that was the design frame, but the stories themselves were being triggered by ideas that the world threw up, you know, threw out. Um, and so there, there are, if you take that idea of how did Tom Cruise get to work in the morning and the vertical um, car system, um, that there is a car chase in Minority Report called the, vertic- the, the um, vertical car chase, I think, that came entirely out of the world build. It would never have existed if if it had been if it had been started by a script. And it's a tiny example, I think, of of ideas, uh, you know, throughout that film and many. Which is if 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 everybody's paying attention to to the logic of the world and the, and that narrative that's narrative world space that's developing, it's a resource for not only the designer, director, the writer, the cinematographer all of the keys, the costume designer, etc. everyone can tap into this. Mm-hmm. So it kind of turns into going back to the original idea of what is process. Um, how do we create a spine that is a resource for all of the um, key players in developing media, whether it's film, TV, animation, game, um, theater, etc.? How do you actually create a methodology at its core that helps everybody cycle in and out of an expanding kind of knowledge base? Yes, and I can see, I can, I can clearly see the logic of that process. You create the, you create the blueprints. You create the, the world from which stories can emerge. I guess it raises a question about finance to some you know to some respect because the because we're still in this in the film world we're sort of locked into this process where in order to get finance you need a script and in order yeah. and so you have to you put all your resources into getting a script and or at least a you know at least a, a treatment of story um and and then you you know you hope to get finance there commercial or or public finance from that so i guess there's a there's a just a I mean, I don't know, if you, you know, if you have a, any thoughts on this, but um, just on a, on that practical level, how if it feels like there needs to be a sort of a re realignment of how financing in, invests in this kind of model. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that as a practitioner, I think what I what I would say is that I understand why script is the basis of financing traditionally. Um, in that it's a sort of singular artifact that a lot of people can gather around, scribble on, you know, (laughs) interfere with easily. Um, uh, And and it's not cheap, you know, it's it's often a very expensive artifact. But it is one that people can, it's a a common platform, right? So a lot of people, most of the people who gather around it can exchange ideas around it it's a it's a simple intrinsic language at the core and everybody can 
weigh it. You know, you could sort of divide the amount of money you have by the number of pages it gives you and throw in a couple of extra um, disruptors and, you know, this bit's going to be more than that. And you can start breaking it down at its coldest. It's a sort of spreadsheet, you know, that, 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 um, that's relatively simple for people to understand. Um, and most of the time, it's absolutely true that I don't really get deeply into a world building film until I've been hired. It's, it's an intrinsic part of my design process. It doesn't cost any more than it does to do production design. It's just kind of a different name for what we always do. And so what I've seen working very well is something like a synopsis or a treatment that has a world build attached to it mm. so that you get deep enough to get an initial round of funding and then you fortify that idea and you give a context to the screenwriter that allows the script to develop in lockstep with an initial world build. And that in itself is a pretty economic concept if you can get an initial round of funding from, from the treatment or the synopsis or the kind of core story idea without having your 108 pages uh, printed out. The, the real, I think, I think the significant change of world building is more in other media now. Um, what is interesting is, although I, I, I'm not seeing virtual reality as a, as a long-term end goal in itself, you know, I think it's a dystopian future that <laughs> awaits us if we all end up with boxes on our heads. But, um, but it's great in the amount of disruption that it's causing and how much chaos it's creating, um, forcing people across all media, including film, to think twice about why or what is going to change about story if the audience has control over their own gaze. Um, and that in itself is creating the opportunity, I would say, to think differently or just kind of say, well, what if we weren't following a Victorian manufacturing process for making film and we were actually following something that resembles more the creative process and the way we think and imagine um, that is more nonlinear, that is evolutionary. Um, there is every evidence that it is not only less, not only not more expensive, but significantly less expensive if you were to pull apart the production process and say, let's have the courage of our convictions, let's go through these um, stages of funding, but you're in, essentially you are starting with inception. It's much more like a theatre process, I would say, mm -hmm. where you, you gather core creatives around the idea, um, you develop that idea in stages, and you're increasing the resolution of the idea as those stages develop. So the story, the script begins with story, script evolves from it, and the story resolves into a linear narrative in lockstep with essentially the visual increasing of resolution in the way we understand it, where our pixels get finer and finer and finer, and we get more and more knowledge about the world. And it's a very efficient process because you start with a broad base, with a small team at low cost, and then you increase your um, your team and your costs in lockstep with your commitment to the next level of resolution, and you're testing it, you're essentially prototyping it every step of the way. And my pitch would be that you have far less waste. Um, you know, I've worked on films that have spent two years developing a script and then we've been six months into production when the studio pulls the plug because they're not sure they like the idea anymore. Um, there's such inefficiency in the film industry and it has the massive impact at, at every level, but I think equally at independent level. Um, the idea that through efficiency you could add one, two, three, four shoot days to your production because you've you've tested it thoroughly in a prototyping way, which is what world building allows, um, or what that kind of more open framework of development allows, seems to me to be the way forward. Um, and if you take the new tools that are available, which are as low cost as any 
media creation tools have ever been you know like virtual reality you can you can be standing inside your world um with a low-cost model built on a mac and a 600 dollar headset um you're you're actually you have better tools available to you than ever before um you have um the ability to more richly experience the earliest stages of what you're developing than ever before you can you can take a bunch of photographs of a location and turn it into a 3d model that you can literally walk around in um these are these are just sort of basic um capabilities now that we all have um and of course they can get more and more sophisticated and expensive but but it's really more about process and thinking i think for me it's about just maybe letting go of the idea of this as a, as a, as a sort of Victorian notion that we're still attached to, that we're in a we're in a linear industrial process that really involves these distinct and separate steps from pre-production to production to post-production, and I would argue that none of those are relevant anymore. That we're really in a process that is inception prototyping capture and finish and those are evolutionary each one of them um and that the more that you could actually overlap the skills you know the more that i could talk to a cinematographer um the more that i could talk to a cinematographer in pre-production the more clear i'm going to be about what i'm building and what the camera's needs are but in traditional film very often the cinematographer just isn't there until, you know, four weeks before shooting. So you've made a lot of decisions without their input, which seems crazy. Mm -hmm. I've never met a sound designer on a film yet. And the environmental design and the sound design are completely connected in every way. So why should the sound designer not have an influence on what the um, environmental design, you know, what, what the production design uh, is developing into and how it might launch possibilities for sound inception prototyping capture and finish yeah very very interesting and, and much and so you're really positing this idea that the the process it should be much more collaborative at an earlier stage yes collaborative and and well non-linear means collaborative i think in that um mm -hmm. Because I think the way that we really work is is in cycles um, of testing ideas, and a lot of the time, it may be um, the writer and the director banging ideas back and forward, and they're cycling between each other. But I've been in, you know, I, I think we've we've all been in different kinds of production situations where um, a new idea comes to the table, and you rethink what you thought a few minutes ago um and that's the creative process right so uh, uh, the idea that we should lock ourselves to something and then move forward in this rigid kind of way is a not very attractive but nor is it very realistic it's not really how film happens people are improvising all the time when the actors come into the into the fold then they're going to assert an enormous influence um so if if one could be going through these traditional processes like location scouting and rehearsal blocking, you know, kind of the early phase of pre-production, move that earlier, extend it longer. That's what I call prototyping, really, where you're getting to play. And from that play, the ideas emerge and become stronger um, and are thoroughly tested um, so that on every level, you've tested them against real conditions, against scale, against economics, against, you know, the, 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 the um, feasibility of, say, shooting a scene that long in the lighting conditions you want or whatever it may be. Um, you get to test all of those things. Um, the, the, the kind of core of it that has evolved out of world building, I would call design visualization, which is this, that it, that's what I'm have been for a decade pitching as being the spine of production where 
you actually have all of the conditions available to you at low resolution. You have a camera, you have an actor as an avatar, let's say, you have a low resolution environment, and you're testing those against each other in relation to the story from the very earliest stages. And then that develops through the process and you get you get real information back from it, which we would call tech biz or, or a data output that tells you where the camera is in relation to the scale of the environment on a particular day next June or, you know, whatever, you, whatever information you need. Are you uh, just, just moving, moving aside from film briefly, um, world building for businesses or corporation? Mm-hmm. Is, is that something which you've been involved in and is there, is there benefit or opportunity there for, for, for companies? Seems to be great interest uh, from companies in this. Um, We've worked with, um, when I stopped, uh, I stopped designing for a while. After Man of Steel, I I started teaching. Um, And at that point, it was necessary to look at how I would, you know, necessarily survive from teaching. So I I needed to um, look at a a different way of using the design creating a design studio i should say and um and so we started working with different corporations and now i've worked with um a range of groups from nike to boeing to burberry to general motors and um uh, autodesk a whole bunch of different companies and what they're really interested in is how story can um extrapolate forward how you could say, well, these are the conditions we have now, this is where we want to go, kind of how would we get there and what stories might we follow, um, what characters might we follow through a different set of conditions that would allow us to understand a world of the future. Um, and it works, um, it's, it's remarkably effective and you could apply, we, we do apply exactly the same principles, like what's the logic of the world what do we know about the world? What's our particular area of focus? Let's say it's um, fashion, then or, or or automotive or airplanes. How do you um, look at it through that lens? What's the impact of the world on your particular um, on the things that you're developing in in the corporation? Um, what happens with new um, materials with a shoe that maybe affects the way that that the individual could perform in their daily life in terms of their relationship to their sport um, and what sport might be changing and how might economics or, you know, what happens if you go to a, um, a an impoverished community where sport is central to their, um, to their lives and um, how does you know, a sustainable approach to the materials you're using change to your relationship. So you, they're all just different kinds of story, I would say. Um, and what we, what we pitch is that it's, we're not being predictive. We're really just saying, let's imagine the world that you'd like to see over the horizon. Um, let's play that out and then thread back to the present. And what would you have to do differently now to get to where you want to go? So we're not saying, you know, Oh, we observe what's happening now and we can tell you what it's going to be like a trend. We're really saying, where would you like it to go? What would you like your story to be? And actually then you develop a language for how you, um, how you think differently about that narrative space and that changes your behavior in the present. And that redirects, if it works, it redirects you towards um, different outcome. And, and it's, it's something we're doing Certainly with corporations, but we're, but also looking a lot at um, things like sustainability, like the ocean, like you know, um, the, the where I'm really interested now is how to use the capabilities that we have, the access we have, the network um, through academic, through academia, through industry, to say what if we could imagine. Um, a different outcome for the ocean or for the future cities, what would we have to do differently now for that not to go in the disastrous direction that some of our 
policies are taking us? What would you have to do differently? And then though those become those really come back to the kind of tribal narrative of how do we make sense of the world around us? How do we pass knowledge through generations differently so the outcome is different for the next generation? Um, that's a fascinating way to apply all this. Absolutely. And so imagining the outcome we would like to see and then working back from there to extrapolate what what steps and actions policies interventions and so on might might need to take place exactly and it's through this notion that really simple thing is it's through a human lens when you when you're really genuinely kind of following human behavior in relation to specific sets of conditions you you're sort of dealing with fundamental truth you you if you say well let's see what happens when a nine-year-old girl who's been brought up in this way and is saved from a single uh, in a single family home and under certain constraints um, and are being and is being taught in this way and and has um, these opportunities and these obstacles in their way, how would they behave in relation to this new world space? Um, and that's where the research comes in. You know, you, you spend a lot of time then with parents and teachers and the children themselves, let's say, and you develop um, narrative kind of typologies that you can follow. And they behave genuinely because they behave instinctively. They behave in human ways. Um, and, and that's really the whole skill of this is how do you remain honest to the human condition? And certainly doesn't always have to be a good outcome. You can, you can look at the what happens if um, people don't behave well and you can look at, you know, you can look at very dystopian outcomes as many Hollywood movies choose to do. Um, or you can, you, you know, so, so you get to test a very broad world space. Um, so I think what, what we found, I mean, we, we developed this in stages through two semesters a year of my class where we started off with small groups doing different stories. And we've ended now with the whole class working on a single world, spending probably half a semester, which is, you know, six, six or seven weeks on developing the world together with no indication of what the final media platform is going to be. Um, but saying, well, you know, you may be developing stories for a media, for a medium that doesn't yet exist or for a platform that doesn't yet exist. Um, focus on the world, focus on the, on developing that with the set of rules that you mutually agree or develop. And then you say, okay, for the second part of the semester, choose a character and run that narrative. Um, and we've done this over and over again. And then the audience, I'm sorry, the, uh, the students or the participants are able to say, well, this is what I'm interested in the world. I'm going to personify that through my, the character that I develop. And then it's going to be a movie or it's going to be a piece of animation or it's going to be a comic book or, you know, we've had some radical outcomes that look nothing like or, um, any, you know, any pre-existing medium and very hard to describe as some kind of existing media form because they're so amalgamated between theater and VR or architecture and Google maps or some, you know, um, they, they, they're, they're very liberated because their characters drive the need of the story. And we end up on every class with a very wide range of different media outcomes. listening to Film Disruptors and I'm in conversation with Alex McDowell and if you are enjoying the show may I suggest you subscribe to our email newsletter simply go to alexstoltz.com and click sign up and in this final section Alex gives his advice for emerging storytellers and I start by asking him how he established himself in his career <laughs> well it's um I think I try and pin it down, and I think it's all Glenn Matlock's fault. Um, it, it, I was um, w was studying painting at Central, um, 
and Glenn, who I'd never met, came in and I was responsible for booking the bands and asked me if I wanted a band to play tomorrow. Um, and we said, you know, what's the name of the band? And he said, the Sex Pistols. And we said, we can't resist having a band with a name like that playing. Um, it was their first gig. So we... we it, really? Um, wow. <laughs> Sorry. They played, they played the night before at... at um, at St. Martin's supporting Bazooka Joe. And then we were their first headline. They actually, Bazooka Joe threw him off the stage. I went to watch and then, and then they came and, and, um, my, my life changed immediately. Really. I, I started fairly quickly working with the pistols. They were incredibly powerful and appropriate blast, you know, to clear our heads. Um, and, uh, ended up, printing t-shirts for Vivian Westwood and um but but again with Glenn um when he left the Pistols uh, and formed the Rich Kids he wanted a record sleeve and he and I formed a design studio to design record sleeves as a result and so that became Rocking Russian Design um that in turn um I, because um, again, because of Glenn, because uh, he was uh, became bass player in Iggy Pop's band. Um, I designed the Soldier album and the campaign around Soldier for Iggy. Um, and then at some point, Iggy said, "Do you know anyone who could make a music video?" And we went, "We'll do, that. we'll do that." And discover what it meant. It was a couple of years before MTV, um, and gathered you know, in a photographer's studio, amazing photographer, Brian Griffin, um, and a young filmmaker called Nick May and myself. And we made the first three music videos for Iggy. Um, and then that launched between record series and music videos that became, um, our, our business. Um, and I went to the, the States because there was just that much more music videos being made. And I was really loving production design, um, which was really what I'd done from the moment I said yes to Iggy. I'd become a production designer and, and I, um, moved into, uh, eventually into a company called Propaganda, which is where David Fincher, um, was the leading light. And I worked with him for a year, seven days a week, um, moving through music videos to commercials. Um, and then, uh, was asked and everybody was moving up together. So we all went from music videos into commercials into features. Um, and I did a couple of films, Lawnmower Man and The Crow and then Fight Club went back with David, David and, and really, um, you know, one of the best filmmakers alive and was who, who pushes the edges of everything and just an incredible, um, learning space and and so by the end of fight club i think we'd developed a lot of the practices that are still in place for me now um and and so it sort of went on from there but um it came really directly out of music which has been interesting wow uh quite quite a journey and then and then from fight club it you just kept on operating in that hollywood space yeah, from Fight Club on, I don't. I'd really stopped doing commercials, pretty much. I think at that point, although they were they were an amazing go to because I, I didn't necessarily want the next batch of low budget sci fi movies that came in to us after Lawnmower Man. Um, so I went to do commercials for a couple of years, and then, um, but between the Crow and Fight Club, I think there was a real sense of a new. Um, a new set of directors and, and one benefited from, from how well they were doing Alex Porras and, and David. And then, um, I worked with Terry Gilliam, um, which was, you know, amazing and highly, um, uh, dysfunctional and interesting experience. Um, but, but, um, that was, that was really cool and and one by one yeah the 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 film sort of became back to back um 
And I hadn't really stopped working from that point of Fight Club until Man of Steel had been really a continuous um, process of production design. And and Minority Report was the was the thing that made me start thinking differently about it. Mm. Um, but it wasn't really immediate. It's just that it started opening the doors in lots of other areas. And those the network that I now have with the World Building Institute at USC came directly from the kind of contacts we started making in Minority Report and and this idea that um, we have so much to learn from each other that if we stay inside this insular Hollywood space, we're not really progressing. And a lot of what we're looking at now in practice terms comes from forcing um, a... Um, forcing an alliance between the game industry and the film industry, for example, which is only just happening. It's crazy how long it's taken. But we're really looking at game engines and real-time and the capabilities of game as a prototyping space. All of that came from just having these doors open left and right through the various different um, opportunities I've had and meeting these people and realizing that there's another world outside the kind of insular world of film that we work in generally. Mm-hmm. And that film is actually, we learn capabilities in film that are unlike anything else I've experienced. I think we are incredibly well equipped to deal with uh, the chaotic world space out there, you know, more than most, just by the process of doing these incredibly intricate um, narratives that we have to you know, and and these complex collaborations that we engage in just to make um, get those films onto a screen um, makes you incredibly resilient and capable. I think in the real world, and most people are in a not only in an insular space, but they're also in a very constrained space in terms of their capability. They tend to do the same job repetitively over and over again, whereas film forces us to think very diverge <laughs> in very diverse ways about mm. about the problems around us mm. alex i just want to ask you one more question uh, sure. alex what is your advice to emerging storytellers well i like the way you phrased the question in that i think it is about storytelling first and i think it's media and platform second um there are obviously people who love a specific medium and they just want to work in that medium but I think from, from ground up, the desire to be a storyteller, um, I think it really requires us at the moment not to be bound by any particular um, platform constraint, nor by any tradition, uh, unless it's helpful. You know, I think there's a great opportunity to amalgamate traditional craft and all the things that we know. There's no reason in heaven and then no... Um, I wouldn't suggest in any way that you throw away that that deep-rooted craft knowledge. But I think we have to think about applying it within a different framework. And that framework is far more intuitive, far closer to the way we really think. Um, It's generally liberated by technology, I would say. And I think it's worth being open-minded about that. There is good and bad. And we don't want to follow the sort of shiny objects. But I think if one was to say be media and platform agnostic and um, follow the story first. And then I think the other hugely important thing is to be collaborative and understand that these stories are going to be so large and need to to travel so broadly across so many different spaces that we don't have the capability, I don't think, if we ever did, of doing this single-handedly. And I think we're really, we're still suffering from a, from this illusion of um, the auteur, you know, the, the author directed, the, author, the author's direction of the audience's gaze. And I think it's really, I think it's a real disadvantage for everybody, from those who are trained as directors to think that they have a singular responsibility to their vision. I see it over and over again at, at school, that, that people are still being trained to be dictatorial in a way. And they're missing the opportunity of an incredible resource that surrounds them in all ways. And I think for me, it's the, uh, the breaking the boundaries of the discipline that, that, you know, not to call myself a specialist, but to be 
that you know to be a curious individual who can listen to people from a huge range of different skills and backgrounds um, and benefit over and over again from that. And I think that's really where we are as creators. Our job is to listen, you know, to to um, develop the stories that we are most interested in through engagement and observation of the world around us and then to pass those stories on. Um, and that's a huge responsibility, but it's a responsibility that can be shared across, you know, a vastly skilled uh, infrastructure of people. Um, and and it, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be doing that. Hmm. I think that's a great place to leave things. So that just leads me to say thank you very much for joining us, Alex. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. If you'd like to find out more, check out the home of Film Disruptors, alexstoltz.com, that's S-T-O-L-Z, where you can download today's show notes, sign up for updates, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Soon.